Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name's John Lyons and joining me today, as always, we have Brendan Connolly and Craig Skinner. We're going to talk about a few of the releases that are out this week. Um, talk a bit about uh, some film news that we uh, that we posted this week on heyyouguys.co.uk. And then finally, we're going to have our lovely section, Rip from the Crypt, where we recommend a particular favourite of ours, which maybe has been overlooked by the general public. So look forward to that. Um, uh, we're going to start with, uh, it's kind of an eclectic mix of films we have um, we have this week. We're going to look at Street Dance 3D, uh, the Werner Herzog Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, and then we're going to finish off with Heartless. Now, Brendan, I think we should start with you first. Tell us all about Street Dance, because I have to say I know virtually nothing about it other than the fact that it's about street dance. Can you well, give us a, fill us in a bit okay. more? Okay, I mean, that's really all there is to say about it. It's in the vein of the step-up movies. Which, in a sense, in the modern day equivalent of, of you know all of these uh, you know Hollywood follies of 1939 or whatever to mm. sort of mangle them all into a generic title. But you know we used to have these films that were just really thinly strung together plots about let's put the show on, mm-hmm. which were an excuse for people to do their turns. And they've come back again now. And Street Nuts 3D is the latest and the most 3D is the rule. <laughs> this is a, is this a British production? The only reason I, I say that is because uh, I've, I'm looking down the cast list and I'm seeing people like Charlotte Rampling, which is cool, and also Eleanor Bron, which I think is wonderful. Um, and you've got dance crews uh, down here. It's flawless and diversity. Now I don't know anything about these people, but I assume they're from. Uh, I, I think I've heard one of their names before. I, uh, aren't they part of Britain's Got? Some yeah, they, they've turned up on these, these talent contests and, right, and right. made a name for themselves. Because, you know, we for a while, when there was a sort of a, a lull in talent contests, or in a sense when talent contests were all singer-driven, a lot of the special turns, you know, the guys who would juggle cocktails and stuff like that, we weren't getting to see them on our television, but we're in we're in the light entertainment era where once again we're, we're getting to watch, you know, people dance and so on. And uh, the current mode of dance is what we see reflected in Street Dance 3D. Okay, so before we go into your into your critique of it, Craig, um, is this your kind of film? Have you got any interest in seeing Street Dance 3D? It's not really my kind of film, no. But I remember, I think it was before Alice in Wonderland, I saw the trailer for this. And yeah. I, I knew nothing about it. And the trailer started, and I couldn't stop laughing from the minute it started. It just... <laughs> I yeah, I was almost crying with laughter by the end. I don't, I don't know what it was about it, but it just made, made me laugh so much. But then at the same time, Charlotte Rampling popped up, and I was like, "What in in, in a street dance film? It seems a little out of place." But um, yeah, I'm quite. I don't know if maybe that was just a badly cut trailer, but it just looked so so hilarious, just really silly, and the way stuff flew out of the camera was just. I was Dumb. going to ask because is this 3D um, and you'll be able to tell us this, Brenton. Is is the 3D used in a particularly good way in street dance? Um, actually, I think there's only one shot in the film where something bursts from negative space to positive space. I think there's actually only one shot where they do that because it's I quite popular. Think... It's popular to knock that idea, isn't it? Um, and, think... and and to say you shouldn't do that. I think some people think of that as being, uh, you know, gimmicky, and also I think it's um, it's kind of a callback to the, um, you know, to the old style 3D where it was used um, in horror movies, for example. Whereas I think well, now, absolutely. And when I went to see um, My Bloody Valentine 3D, there was more than enough of it, frankly. Mm. 
But but if you go and see, for example, Toy Story 2 in 2D, they quite fearlessly did that with two-dimensional images quite a lot. Mm. Um, and then, of course, when it was converted into 3D, it became an interesting sort of point in the whole debate because it's like, well, they didn't do it because it was going to be in 3D. It's Surely it's an acceptable piece of film language. And it's only that at the moment we're looking at it from the context of it seeming gimmicky because it's all we talk about when we talk about 3D films. I don't think the debate about 3D is actually particularly well-informed, and I don't think... I think almost nobody understands it. Um, and I think in about 10 or 15 years, we'll see a lot more informed debate and discussion about the language of, of stereo cinema. Well, it's going to be interesting because we've got... I think that what people are saying is in, in, in the old-style 3D, there was a lot of, you know, the sticks pointing out. And, and in some way, Alice in Wonderland suffered from that very, very slightly. Um, Clash of the Titans was a, just a particularly you know awful you know 3D conversion anyway. But I think people are trying to differentiate it in saying that look at the 3D that is possible in something like Avatar, which of course a lot of people will have seen. And um, but I there's think... precisely as many shots in Avatar where something is in positive space as in Street Dance 3D. Do, do, do you understand what I'm sure, saying? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that um, I think that just certain popular conceptions are getting attached to these films and they're sticking. Now, I'll say this. Street Nights 3D has got an absolutely lowest, lowest common denominator storyline. It is like Broadway Melody in 1929 or, or whatever, right? The whole point is to show us people dancing. That's all it's really there for. And to tie that to some sort of semi-positive representation of the young kids who like this sort of street dance. Mm. So in a very low-level way, it's kind of empowering, right? No, I'm not really heaping a claim on it for that, but I'm just saying that's, that's the concept that's going on here. This film's going to succeed or fall on the level of these Broadway Melody of 1929 films. And actually, I think it's quite a success on that level because um, it's actually been shot in 3D. It's not an up-conversion. And the 3D is very vivid and liquid and clear and nice. And though the language of 3D is not particularly elaborate, it's not particularly offensive either. And it's of the recent 3D films, it's a film that just sits quite happily in the in the medium. Now, if you don't want to watch people doing this sort of dance, and, you know, I don't necessarily, I mean, I enjoy it when I see it, but I wouldn't go my way looking for it, um, uh, then don't, don't. I mean, if you've got no, if you, if, if these were on TV and you'd channel hop, right, yeah. then don't go and see this film. I wouldn't. I wouldn't stay in to watch Britain's Got Talent, but if I'm channel hopping and I see they're there and they're throwing around the little kid with the afro and stuff, I'm like, oh, let's have a look, see what, what they've come up with. Because it's about them coming up with gimmicks, it's about them coming up with novelty, about them tying their bodies and the music together in, in inventive ways. There may not be very much discipline in some respects, but, but there is a lot of creativity there and a lot of skill. And um, it's, it benefits... From, from being 40 foot tall on the screen. Sure, now, absolutely. It, it may be, maybe they've been a little bit timid about how they've used the 3D in some places because everyone's going, no, it should only be used for depth. Um, so I think maybe they've been a little bit timid about it in places. Um, but uh, it's a nicely stereographed film. It is a nicely stereographed film. And, you know, some shots of rain and things like that have, have a real nice sense of volume to them. Okay. Um, so if you're a 3D buff, and I am a 3D buff, I'm a huge 3D buff, then it's essential. Okay, I mean, that sounds... Um, what, what I was thinking when, when I've been looking at this, and I, I did see the trailer, it looks to me a bit like it is just uh, a, a feature-length, you know, feature-length um, Britain's Got Talent, but... Kind of. Them, yeah, and, uh, to be, but to be honest with you, that that's what sells, and I, I, I can't see this film, um, you know, breaking any critical barriers, but I think, you know... If, 
there there are so few films like that, especially coming from Britain now. I think it's a pretty nice experiment. Do you know what I mean? I think it's pretty nice of people. Kind to of. Say. I mean, it's it's a callback to to something that was very popular in the twenties and thirties. Mm. That, that's what it is. It's it's a modern take on something that, that you couldn't have moved for when going to the cinema was a more ve- there was a more varied concept of the form of entertainment you could see at cinema. And let's be honest. I think that that, that really was true. Then. Sure. Um, and people expected to have a news package and a cartoon, so on that level it was more varied. And also, the genres were um, a, a, a bit more theatrical in some respects. Um, so you could see a drama, you could see a horror film, you could see a romance, or you could see something closer to a theatrical genre. Uh, a vaudeville film, something like Howls of Poppin'. Nobody's making anything like Howls of Poppin' today. Which is a real shame, well, isn't it? Yeah. Sign me up, I'd be first in line for Howls of Poppin'. I'll tell you what, if it was Howls of Poppin' 3D, I'd buy my ticket a month in advance. <laughs> Well, maybe that will come out next next week. I, mean, I'd, I would love to see that. I have to say. I mean, uh, Street Dance 3D. It doesn't appeal to me in in any way. Um, but I'm pleased to see it out there. I, I, I don't know how it's done critically. I'm not sure if that even matters. Oh, it's big, yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, and, and I haven't read many reviews, but they they've been saying things like, you know, it looks fantastic. Some of the moves are, are amazing. There's no doubting the skill of the performers. But why try and wrap it up in some you know, cliched story that's not going to engage anybody. I know it's it's conventional and it's kind of pointless, but um, but you know, it got the film made and it got the film accepted by the teenage audience that are best going to accept it. And Craig is absolutely right. I mean, it's laughably naff, mm. but but you, you 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 accept that before you go in. So you so you know, if you know that's what you're getting, then 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 you're all right. Exactly. Aren't you? Yeah. I mean, you, you you're not looking for. You know, you're not looking for something on a par with bourbon when you're going into, you know, street dance 3D. But um, okay, well, we'll see how that plays out. Thanks, thanks for the for the thoughts on that. Moving to the kind of other side of the of the, uh, of the spectrum, another film you saw, Brendan, because um, the uh, Werner Herzog Bad Lieutenant film, um, subtitled Port of Call, New Orleans. Now, this was a film that was, um, I think, it was out in the US um, last year. And it's not a remake, it's not a reboot, it's more of a reimagining, I, I understand, of the uh, Abel Ferreira film um, starring Harvey Keitel. Now, I haven't seen uh, the, the the new one by Werner Herzog. Craig, I know that you've seen both of them. Um, would you would you say that, that the Werner Herzog film is a completely different film in, in, in every single way? And is, is it worth seeing if you've seen the first one? Um, yes, definitely worth seeing if you've seen the first one. Um, I think it's not a remake. I wouldn't say it's strictly a reboot. I think it's, um, I think it was Kim Newman, maybe Sight and Sound put it quite well, that he said it was like a director taking the premise and making his own version. And he, uh, he suggested that perhaps every, every famous director could do the same thing. So you could have, uh, uh, any big director could pick their city and do their own bad lieutenant film. Because um, it's very much like that. It's um, Werner Herzog takes the premise and he makes his own film from it. Um, it's very far removed from the first one, apart from apart from really the premise and the kind of the nuts and bolts of the story. The, the main character is a lieutenant who takes a lot of drugs and get, has a bad gambling habit. But aside from that, it's it's very very different to the original Bad Lieutenant. And it, is, is it? I mean, is it obviously you know Werner Herzog is one of those directors who is um, totally uncompromising in terms of what he puts up on screen, and I think it has been really, really affected. But uh, you're a big fan of Herzog, I believe, Craig. Is this one of his? Is this one of his finest? Um, I absolutely love this film. I mean, it's totally. I wouldn't actually say it's one of his finest films because it, 
in a way, it doesn't feel like a Werner. In one way, it doesn't feel anything like a Werner Herzog film, and in another way, it's a hundred percent him because it the setting, the New Orleans setting, and the um, I mean, having a big name actor like Nicolas Cage, it doesn't feel like it should be in Werner Herzog's filmography. But at the same time, when you watch it, it's a hundred percent him, and and just the the craziness of it, it's just just bizarre. And Nicolas Cage's performance, I mean. It, again, it, it doesn't seem like Nicolas Cage should be in a Werner Herzog film, but then when you watch it and you you look at his performance and you think back to, I don't know, maybe Klaus Kinski's performance in something like uh, Fitzcarraldo or uh, Agura Wrath of God, and it, it, it does make sense. You can kind of understand where it's coming from. Do you think that it's been the case that Nicolas Cage, who has been kicked around pretty much um, for some of his recent choices and some of his recent performances, do you think, uh, because he's always seemed to have this this side to him where he can go absolutely crazy and he can do something a bit different. Um, obviously, I haven't seen the film, but um, do you think that uh, Badly Tenor and Werner Herzog gave him the opportunity to kind of rediscover that side of himself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it gave, <laughs> it sounds very cheesy, but it gave us the chance to rediscover it as well because I, I was talking to Gary from the site about this as well, that I kind of feel like I've rediscovered Nicolas Cage and that uh, I need to reappraise his whole career. Because I, I saw this at the London Film Festival in October and then a few months later saw Kick-Ass. And there are all these things in Nicolas Cage's performance that it's, aside from... A lot of people kind of think he's nuts and the, the things that happen in his films that make them entertaining are a mistake. But right, I've come okay. to realise a lot of the things he does are actually quite well crafted. And I mean, hearing some of the set stories about Kick-Ass and the fact that a lot of the things that made that performance so good were decisions by Nicolas Cage. And I mean, the whole Batman voice, the Adam West voice that he does, is that was Nicolas Cage turned up on set one day. And uh, the extra facial hair that he has, is that was all his decision. And um, reading interviews about Bad Lieutenant as well, like, I'm really struck by the fact that Actually, some of this, what I thought was craziness and maybe even bad acting, is actually quite deliberate, and he's doing something quite interesting. But this that, is that said, I don't know about things like Wicker Man, whether that was. You actually see, now that, that, yeah, that was where I was going to go with the next thing because, of course, I'm looking back and I'm thinking of films like Knowing and 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 Ghost Rider and, and National Treasure, where he is just being, you know, the leading man, and and the Wicker Man is a particularly good example. Um, but. I, I'd be quite interested to see this only because of what I've heard of, of, of his of his performance. I was a big fan of, of adaptation and what he did there. And also with Kick-Ass as well, there was the notion that here you've got Nicolas Cage, a really, really well-known um, actor who hasn't perhaps you know impressed too much with his recent choices, doing something so, um, so complete and so total. That yeah, he- and I mean, you go back as well, and you, you, there, it's, it's always been there, because, I mean, Wild at Heart, he's fantastic in, and Raising Arizona as well. It's, Raising Arizona is an incredibly entertaining performance from Nicolas Cage. Maybe it's the director, maybe it's the project, but, um, Brendan, you've, uh, you also saw um, the new Bad Lieutenant film. What are your mm. thoughts on the film and Nicolas Cage? Wow, I love Nicolas Cage. Would Nicholas Cage is great. Would you agree then that that he has you know not not done himself too proud in in sort of some of his more recent films? Can't we say that about James Stewart? Can't we say that about Al Pacino? Can't we say that about? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but everybody's I'm, I'm everybody's in an armload of turkeys. But I wonder why Nicholas Cage seems to be 
it, it, it seems to stick to him, and, and I have no explanation yeah, for that. Yeah, I, I, he's got a very distinct personality, and I think it's quite a popular notion that he's nuts. And, and he may well be, he may well be, but that doesn't mean he's not a good actor. Mm. He may well be... Um, he may well be clinically eccentric, shall we say, but that doesn't that doesn't mean he's not one of the greatest performers uh, we've got. I mean, Vampire's Kiss. I mean, really, um, and World at Heart, and and adaptation, and I mean, um, you know, his Wiley Coyote impersonation in Raising Arizona is perfect, and I think I mean it highlights. I think there is always probably, or in his better films, he's got a very clear and interesting central concepts for what the character is in mind so be it the Adam West, be it the Wiley Coyote or, or whatever and the film's part doesn't work is where what he's basing it on is like Dolph Lundgren or something, mm. I mean if you look at him in Con Air it's just shameful but it's just a dreadful, dreadful film from the ground up mm. so I don't hold him responsible for that I think Nicholas Cage is, is, is tremendous and I think his performance in Badly Tone is, is, is wonderful okay, and very, so- very very clever from, from even in terms of the physicality of having to Embody that 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 injury he, he paints in the opening scene, all, all the way through to, you know, playing the uh, playing the animal scenes, shall we say, such as the scene with the iguanas in a in 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 a way that that's actually quite different than 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 the cliche. Um, but I I think I think he gets the the tone. I think he gets that it's actually quite funny, and it's quite obvious to me that this film is a deconstruction of. Uh, police procedural cliches and a sort of almost fatalistic uh, doomed police uh, policeman on the bad side of track story that like the first film you know is a, is a, is a huge uh, very clear example of I hate Abel Ferrara's first film I think it's didactic shallow clunky um, I think it's I think it's um, sort of Catholic messages slapped on with a trowel. I think it's almost entirely lacking in any sort of irony. But at the same time it's massively self aware. Um I think it's I think it's I think it's offensive in its exploitation. Um and I'm glad to see Werner Herzog come in uh and and, 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 and his collaborators here um come in and, and sort of spin it and twist it and rip it apart, really, and show it up. Um, there are there are there are more similarities, I think, than than Craig listed. For example, one of the more famous and controversial scenes in the the first film involved, uh, well, frankly, an act of sex abuse. Um, and uh, there's a sort of a a, a reinvention of, of that in this film. Mm. Um, there's definitely um, uh, the, the sort of the way that the ending pays off in the first film with some sort of religious epiphany. Uh, it's like some some hilarious. My wife compared it to all of his fruits coming up in a row on a fruit machine, but it's it's just it's it's sort of almost parodic, parodic and it's definitely funny. It's definitely it, genuinely laugh out loud funny. When I saw it at the London Film Festival, one of the things I absolutely loved was it's the first time I've ever really seen an audience completely turn, and it was by the ending. Everyone, I mean, that scene where, I, I mean, I don't want to give it away too much, but yeah, <laughs> the fruit machine thing, they, the whole audience were just laughing in hysterics. It was just, yeah. It's, it's pitch, that, that scene it's pitch perfect. The way Herzog uses the camera there to mount these things. It's, yeah, it's I mean, just, Nicholas Cage as well is pitch perfect. So it's it sounds just, like you've got, you know, two, two people who have just come together and, you know, just tried to make 
try to make something that's, that's completely different and in some ways completely unrelated to, apart from the premise for the for the no, it just, film. It, it, it's an analysis and a deconstruction of it and other similar uh, ridiculous police procedurals if you look at this film on paper it's just pathetic and sad mm-hmm. it's just sad on paper this film if you don't know what the tone is and you assume it's straight it's one of the most boring pedestrian uh, quasi-fascist uh, you know procedurals you can you can imagine it's just incredibly just straight down the middle checks all the boxes of of, of bad police drama really and that's not what you get on screen at all okay but it sounds like Nicolas Cage elevates it what about the rest of the cast are they in good form here Brad Dourif's great it's always good to see him he's a very comfortable mix with Mr Herzog of course they seem to be um, a similar perspective talking a similar language mm-hmm and you got people like Eva Mendes and, and Val Kilmer in it as well, which seem make up a you know pretty nice cast. Kilmer's another one, isn't he? Where you might ask yourself, is he nuts or not? I think I don't know. He, he he's a bit of an odd one. I think when they had the whole Island of Doctor Moreau thing, I think that was just a really odd film. And I remember Kilmer from um, uh, Top Secret. That was the first time I ever saw him, which I thought was you know was a ridiculously fun film. But um, and I'm I'm looking back over what he's been doing now, and or in, you know in in the last couple of years and it's like he was the voice of Kit you know for for the, for the reboot of Knight Rider and I'm thinking is this the same guy who you know who was who, he was one of the Batman you know he was one of the, one of the people who, who, who played Batman yeah, and terrible performance he gave though yeah no it, it was terrible but look but that was the that was the level that, that he was at he was up there with you know who else played Batman Michael Keaton and um uh, George Clooney, do you know what I mean? Clooney, yeah. He was he was up there, and I'm trying. To, and also, he was in Heat as well, and and Tombstone. And if you think back to to him, I, I think that he can give really really fantastic performances. But I just think he has taken a few you know wrong turns. Like how how, how long has it been since Spartan? Spartan was great. Um, that's uh, 2004, I think. Okay, it's a little a little while. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, and, and there hasn't been an awful lot since then. Like, like, like I said, with with Kit and. Um, with with Night Rider, he's a lot of people like him in that, that that Shane Black movie. What was that called? Um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, but again, that's sort of you know five years ago, and it, it seems quite strange that he's you know he's he's suddenly in this. But is he? I mean, I, I don't know how, how big his part is in this, but is he is he back to you know back 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 to the good Val Kilmer, if you like? No, he's he's not in it enough to give much of a to, to for you to notice much of a good performance or anything. I didn't think. Right. Okay. I mean, as well. I mean, even man. He's in a couple of well. key scenes. Yeah. Okay, but is this? Would you say? I mean, it sounds like this is Nicolas Cage's film. So, um, I mean, I'm actually really, really intrigued to go. You know, to go and see. It. I'm glad that it's got the, the thumbs up from uh, from both of you. But um, well, our American listeners, John, let's not forget they've got him in a very big release, playing a very big role this weekend. He's in the MacGruber movie. Of course, and is that a big role in there? Because I, I, I haven't really kept up with. Yeah, uh, I, I believe so. I believe he's uh, he's a very very key player. I don't, I don't want to spoil it because I don't know how the story plays out. So I don't know how much I should should say, but but it's not a minor role. Okay, I mean, MacGruber was was released. Um, I think it was last last Friday. I think we're recording this on Sunday. Um, I don't know how well it's done so far over the weekend, but it's I think tanked. Oh, has it? Mm. Okay, because there was a Shrek Four, Shrek. Shrek Forever After, or whatever it's called. That's out as well, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously they're slightly different different kind of movies, but it's it's a, it's a shame to see that. I guess um, I'm, I I haven't really heard much about MacGruber. We don't. It was a Saturday Night Live. Uh, parody, wasn't it? That's been turned into a film. Is that right? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, it's sort of a MacGyver spoof, right? Yes, of course. And there was news this week that the, the writer had been assigned to the MacGyver film, and um, of course they're making a film of... Um, you know, another MacGyver film. I mean, it, it, they've been trying to do one on and off for mm. quite a long period of time. And Brendan, you were right. This, this is a bit of a tangent here, but when you, you um, we discussed The Losers, and I said there was that you know kind of fun line about Columbus Short's character making a... Um, mm. rocket propelled grenade out of like a bit of tubing and some duct tape and then he said I'm the black MacGyver you then said oh he says MacGyver after that I didn't believe you and then it turns out that you were right thus further damning I tell you no lies John you know that that's very true so um, but I, th- I think that to carry with, with MacGyver thing I think that that's pretty much beyond parody so I'd be really interested to see what, what they try and do with the film and of course you've got the A-Team coming out this summer so you know everything's coming back isn't it everything's coming back um, okay let's round I, up I was thinking actually uh, the other day that isn't it a bit strange that all the things that we liked when we were kids when people who are kids now get older their, fa- their films that they're going to look back on were thing- toy franchises and TV series that we liked when we were kids, but rebooted versions. I get it. So what, like, Maybe, yeah. Um, um, I, Which seems ever so strange. You see, the thing is, I mean, this, this is going back to the whole nostalgia angle that, you know, that we talked about. Um, if you look at something like The A-Team that, that, that's coming out, uh, and then if, if you think, OK, well, I'm going to go back and maybe look at the original TV series, the TV series was pants. I mean, it was fun, but it, it was pants, and it was exactly the same, you know, virtually week to week. So what they've done is they've, they've taken, hopefully they've taken the best bits out of it and put it into this, you know, bizarre, bombastic action film with, act, you know, lead actors of the day with only a sort of a, a mild, you know, nostalgia element put in there. But I don't know, it... <sighs> It kind of bugs me because you you know you are going to have these people who love the old A team. I've I've got no hold over it at all. I remember it. It was on Saturday afternoons on, you know, on ITV or whatever, and it was fun to pass the time with it. You know, it's not the kind of thing that I, that I used to sit back and or you know buy the DVD box sets for. And so I don't even know if people are going to be aware that it used to be a TV program. Kids today probably won't. No, but it's not really for them, is it? I mean. I'm, I'm thinking it's, more, it is. it's aimed more at the sort of eighteen to thirty-five, and I think you sort of have a a gradient, a seepage of people becoming more and more aware of it as you go as you go through that. And I think it's I think it's predominant market in America is going to be sort of twenty-nine to thirty-five year olds. I really do. The nostalgics, um, yeah. But of course, they're going to be marking it to kids as well. But I think Craig's point point's interesting because it never happened before. There wasn't a generation before that got sort of reinvigorated for us not really not to that to that degree um i suppose the closest were you know things that were sort of evergreens like the the disney characters and so on we seem to be a particularly nostalgic generation anyway and i think it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because really yeah i i I really because like i've not spoken to anybody over the age of 60 who's not banged on about how much better things used to be it's not a case of that but we hold things like um, and this is certainly true within you know my circle. We we hold things like um, you know the A team and and things that we used to enjoy as kids. You know that that's kind of common currency that we've seen you know turned back and then projected 
in, in, in into the future when if you like with the uh, with the A Team film. So pretty much everyone will remember the A Team and everyone, you know, will remember certain things about the eighties in particular. I mean look at the look at the, the, the name of the site that you know the that we're running. Hey you guys, it was all about the you know the Goonies and it was about eighties initially. And I think that um, there is a heavy nostalgia there is a heavy nostalgic element um, within a, you know within a lot of people and you only have to talk to people. I mean when when Dave and I go out and we say we're from Hey You Guys instantly. It's like, oh, Goonies, I remember that. Fantastic. You know, that was a really, really good film. And then you can talk about Back to the Future, which, of course, has its, you know, 25th anniversary this year. And you can bet there's going to be an awful lot of, you know, um, they're, they're going to be bringing that back in every way possible. Do you know what I mean? So I think that there is a kind of a heavy nostalgia element. And I do think that that's why we're seeing things like the A-Tim, you know, being, being put out. And also Hot Tub Time Machine as well, which is, you know, again... That's a throwback to the eighties, isn't it? That's um, you know a way of sort of you know visiting, revisiting the eighties, and you, you you can bet that you've got a lot of people who remember the eighties, and, uh, and and will go and see it just for the purely non, you know nostalgic element. Isn't it? Isn't it strange though that so so many of the audiences are really happy to see these things just repackaged and just make a reference to it, and that's enough. Like they they don't actually need anything good. That you can just make a film and just you know there's almost a wink at the camera to that nostalgic thing that you remember and that that's enough almost to get audiences in i mean i i don't think if you did that previously and uh you kind of remade a film or rebooted a film or or just did a thing like hot tub time machine you know in the 70s harking back to something in the 40s that that would have been popular i don't i think i'm with brendan there i don't we are like Although older people would necessarily, they would talk about old times and be nostalgic, I'm not sure the, the pop culture reference, referencing is kind of, I think that does feel like a new thing. I don't know. Well, in the, way, in the way it's practiced, for sure, but definitely early cinema was full of remakes. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, big franchise films like uh, The Bat, became The Bat Whispers and then was remade again three times within the first 30 years of feature filmmaking. Mm. Um, Phantom Mass gold reinvented. Sorry, what was that, Craig? Sorry, the, the Gold Diggers films, going, kind of going back to your... Uh, over and over again they happened, yeah, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and, you know, but Phantom Mass was remade over and over again. There were several Lone Ranger series. How many Tarzan films were there? Mm. Tarzan never yeah. went away. Um, but, there's only one person who's had more films based on them than Tarzan, and that's Emmanuel. Okay, Craig, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, but the, the, I think the defining factor is that those films were another film. They were like a either new story? Film, either, either a new story and kind of a, felt like a new film and a franchise, or they were a, a remake that did something slightly different. And it, it's a different thing now. I think the way they're doing that's it now is... That's not true is, about this remake that's slightly different. That's simply not true. Some books that were filmed a few times were filmed with different casts, but in equally pedestrian fashions. Mm. Um, and, and some of the films we remember uh, and cherish are actually just one of a series of, of films that were based on the same source material, but we forget the other ones. Um, you kind of have to kind of get under there and sort of dig a bit to find out this stuff. But at the time, a lot of stories were being retold over and over and repackaged over and over. It's just they haven't survived till today. And I'd be interested to see whether... 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, what the curve is, what, what the degradation in, in, in the sort of stockpile of, 
of, of remakes is how many of them get lost, how many of them get forgotten, or indeed how many of them just get remade again, and then that might become the definitive version. Okay, that's a brief nostalgic you know, tangent there, but that does make a lot of sense. Okay, well let, let's let's round off badly, Tenant. That's out now in the UK. I think it's been out in America for uh, a while, so do go out and uh, and check it out if you fancy it. Um, but going to move yeah, on to can, you go on, Greg. Sorry, you can get it on DVD and Blu-ray in the states. So if you your local cinema isn't playing it, uh, import it because it's absolutely awesome. I absolutely love it. I don't know what kind of distribution it's, it's got, available for our American American listeners can actually watch it on on television as well now. Okay, you see, this is like the Brothers Bloom, isn't it? Where you've had a film that's, that's been out in, in in America for so long that it's out DVD on Blu-ray all over the place. So um, we're going to be talking about Brothers Bloom in a couple of weeks, I believe. Craig, I think it's out fourth, yeah, yeah, fourth June of June. So yeah, so we'll we'll be talking about that in that week because we uh, we enjoyed that quite a lot. So all right, let's move on to our next film, which is one uh, Brandon you uh, wanted to talk about. This is Heartless, which is a yeah. film by uh, written and directed by Philip Ridley um, with. Jim Sturgis and uh, Eddie Marsden, who I'm a big fan of. So, tell us all about it. Tell us about the premise, and uh, you know, is it any good? It's only Philip Ridley's third feature film, and it's his first one in 15 years. Um, and his first two films, you may be aware of, The Reflecting Skin and The Passion of Darkly Noon. Indeed, if you've seen The Passion of Darkly Noon, you're, you're, you're very lucky because it's a film that's kind of slipped down a, a sort of a, the back of the legal sofa, as it were. Okay. Um, and it's going to take um, a few wrangles for for English-speaking countries to, to see that on DVD, I, I understand. Um, but uh, Philip Ridley also writes plays, novels, uh, music... Um, he was trained at uh, Central St Martins as an artist, um, so he's he's a you know a, a multimedia man really. Um, but he uh, has become very interested in narrative. So in his shorts, his plays, and his feature films, though there is a strong um, uh, flair evident in the aesthetic, it's all in the support of a of a narrative. Now, Heartless is his first film to be shot digitally um, and that sets it apart from the others and another thing that's very modern about it is its distribution pattern as we speak Heartless is in cinemas um, but not many cinemas in fact it's been rather shortchanged I think by, by Lionsgate who are distributing it um, it's not just in London but it's mainly in London some other big cities Manchester, uh, Liverpool so on um, around those areas you'll, you'll find a, a sprinkling of screenings but here in Oxford, no, forget about it. Um, you know, Portsmouth, forget about it. Um, but um, it's uh, available as of tomorrow, just three days after its theatrical release, on DVD, Blu-ray, and video on demand, either via Sky or download services. Um, and this just seems a little sad, really, because Heartless is a film that was wonderfully when projected, very, very large. Um, it, it's a great film to see with an audience too because its tone and its mood changes and there's some twists and it's always fun I think watching a film with twists in a room of people where you can sort of feel the wave of realisation right? you hear all these pennies clinking around the room as they, as they drop um, Heartless tells the story of a young man called Jamie with a heart shaped birthmark on his face um, and to not say too much about it there seem to be some malevolent forces in his neighbourhood threatening people and Jamie tries to stand up to them and he ends up making a deal which will empower him and indeed get rid of the birthmark on his face um, but there's a price 
to, to be paid. When Eddie Marsden turns up, he's playing a character called Weapons Man, whose job is to equip Jamie with, with weapons to to handle his malevolent forces in his neighbourhood. But Weapons Man is sort of a... Yeah, he's like a character of Clive Barker, or, or, or I would say particularly a Neil Gaiman story. He's he's not a man so much as he's an idea. Okay. Um, it's it's a it's a film that's at once about urban violence in London and it's huge fantasy at the same time, and it's beautiful. And it premiered at Fright Fest last year, and I think it was the best film in the entire festival. And it's taken quite a while to, to obviously to get out here, and I have to say that I. I've been seeing this distribution model more and more now, and I think it's kind of gaining popularity. And in some ways, you know, you, it could be argued that more and more people will get a chance to see it, um, you know, when the buzz is high and when people are talking about it. Um, the only downside is, like Brendan, as you say, people won't be able to see it on the big screen. But I guess, you know, that's that's obviously the, the payoff that, that Lionsgate were after. But, um, it's really worth the trip, people. I mean, really. Go to find any film and look it up and find your nearest cinema and take a trip. It's, it's really worth it. Okay, that sounds... I mean, um, I'm a big fan of some of the some of the cast in there. I haven't seen the film as of yet, but um, Craig, what about you? Are you um, in any way interested in this film? Um, yeah, I've, I've been intrigued by especially the kind of the good press that's been around it. Um, yeah, I think it's playing the Prince Charles in London. I'll probably be going there to see it. Um, yeah, it sounds as well like like Brendan says that perhaps seeing it with an audience is is going to be beneficial as well. So um, I will try and try and seek it out. I mean, it has been getting a lot of good buzz, and people are saying that this is. I mean, um, this is you know a sort of dark horror film. Um, do you think that that people will go into it, Brendan, thinking that this is going to be quite you know a sort of a conventional horror? Is there anything more to it than that? Because it sounds like that there there's, is. There's a lot more more to it than that. It's it's the best way to describe it, John. It's a fairy tale, um, but it's not a fairy tale that shies away from the from the um, the scary and, and bad elements. I mean, it's Coraline for grown-ups, actually. Not that Coraline wasn't for grown-ups. It's Coraline not for children. Let's put it that way. Um, that's what it is. That's the sort of world it operates in. Um, it, it's about real people uh, in a fairy tale. You know, but a fairy tale that's about real life. Um, I think Sturgis is fantastic. Uh, I, I've, I, I love him anyway. I mean, I'm. I think Across the Universe is just one of the great films, and I think Sturgis' uh, performance in it is, is beautiful. And I think he's the heart of Heartless, and his performance here is great. And he also gets to sing again. There's several songs on the soundtrack that were written specifically and originally for the film. And it is a, a very multi-layered film like that. Um, the, the graffiti on the walls has been very purposefully designed. The sound design and the music bleed together in, in some interesting and important ways. And there are levels of subtext and meaning hidden in all of the mise-en-scene. Um, and that includes, you know, both the both the music and, and the lyrics that, that Sturgis has been given to, to perform. And before the premiere last year at Fright Fest, he actually came out and did a couple of the songs live for us. And that helped. That's so cool. Okay, I mean, it sounds like it's a really good uh, addition to, you know, to Philip Ridley's um, filmography, particularly as as he doesn't make them that often. So, I'd be really interested to see it. That's out, as Brendan said, um, uh, in featured cities uh, now. But do try and check it out on the big screen. It sounds like it's it's really really worth it. If you can't see it, or if you, and if you are interested, then I guess 
DVD, Blu-ray, or video on demand. That will be really interesting. Okay, that's cool. Thanks for that, guys. Um, I think we will uh, move on now. Brendan, there's a bit of film news um, that we heard mm. about this week. It's more of a continuation of um, of the development of a project, which has, uh, you know, I think it's surprised some people. They are going back to uh, the world of the apes, um, Sort of made famous by Charlton Heston and Planet of the Apes, they're making a prequel which is set in present day mm. called Rise of the Apes. Now, this I, I believe the the plot goes along some you know along these lines, and it's about scientists, uh, geneticists messing about and coming up with with uh, with apes that can talk and everything. And I think it just it goes pear shaped from there. I'm sure there's more to it than that. The news this week was that James Franco has been signed up to play the lead. Um, Brendan, what's your take on this on this news and the whole Rise of the Apes phenomenon? Well, we can't really sort of giving a little bit of spoiler for the first Planet of the Apes campaign um, because the first Planet of the Apes ends in a very particular and specific way, and it's one of the most famous twist endings in in cinema. Now, this film has to give that away by its very concept. Yeah, that's true. There's, but no, way, there's no way this film can't spoil the the big. Planet of the Apes twist, so that's that's really odd, isn't it? So they're obviously sort of making some sort of assumption that the the twist doesn't matter anymore, or it's just public currency that is hand to hand, and 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 there's no point keeping it secret anymore. They're probably right, but it's a strange move. I wonder if it is it is one of those twists, it's a bit like the Sixth Sense, it's a bit like the Empire Strikes Back, where the where the twist is part of the of the film's fabric, and you just know it. Do you know what I mean? It's not one of those things that um, that still surprises that many people and I think it's also I don't know how long it was 50 you know maybe 40 years ago when it came out and I think that since then it has become that that's become the scene that you think of when you hear about Planet of the Apes so the notion of going back um totally bypassing the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes of a, of a few years ago I think going back and making a prequel of it is set in present day um to give a kind of backstory most prequels when they do that if there is you know a world that that, ha- that was in the first film, if you like, in Planet of the Apes, where there was that twisting. I think most people would know that, and there, there would be an assumption to it. But um, I mean, it, it seems a bit of an odd, uh, an odd move anyway to, to to revisit the apes, not least because they're going to be doing CGI apes. And when Tim Burton, you know, did his version of a few years ago, he of course stayed with the, you know, with the, the you know, men in suits, and that worked. Well, really well, did he? Did he? I mean, to, only to an extent. There was a lot of CG enhancement on their mouth uh, action because humans couldn't do the things with their mouths that the apes had to. <laughs> There's definitely scenes where characters are giving a battle cry and what you're looking at sort of stops being prosthetic just below the nose and the rest has been drawn on the computer. But nobody knew, John, because typically, as is always these ways, nobody actually really can tell the difference between CG and model work except for under two conditions. One, when the CG is particularly bad. Two, when they've been told it's there already. So but people not expecting there to be any CG in Planet Apes probably didn't realise how much there was. And there's definitely scenes with huge rampaging sort of armies, battalions of apes in which you know, they did not film anything like that number. That's true, of course. I mean, but that's sort of part of the course, and I think what most people would have, would have seen is the the stars, like the Tim the Tim Roth and the Helena Helena Bonham Carters. They would have seen them, and they would have seen the makeup that was 
that was on them and they would be recognisable. Whereas I think with Rise of the Apes, there's going to be it's going to be entirely CG. And I think uh, apart from when they're actually apes, that's 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 the thing. It's more comparable to something like Babe. When the ape is doing something that an ape would do, mm. it's going to be an ape. When it has to do something that an ape wouldn't do or they can't get it to do, it's going to be CG replaced. So, okay, so, I mean, CG aside, what do you, what do you think of, of, of the whole notion of, of setting it in modern day? Do you think that the Apes uh, series franchise is kind of worth revisiting? Yeah, I think you could, you could do this over and over. Um, if you've got something, if you've actually got something to say, there's definitely lots to be said using this, this metaphor still. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it's, it's a very rich and, and, and deep concept and I think that's the strength of the first film is that the central idea is so strong I don't think the first film's really that hot it kind of stops in the middle for a courtroom sequence in which everybody stands around and sort of um, delivers all this exposition and sort of talks us through the moral debates of the film and then it goes back to being the story again it's like hang on a minute I mean are we five? what is this? Um, so I, 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 I wasn't I wasn't too convinced that as a piece of drama, Planet of the Apes actually worked anywhere nearly as well as Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes works. And I know that's controversial, but I think it's really true. Craig, let's uh, bring you in on this because, um, first of all, what are your thoughts on, on the notion of a Planet of the Apes prequel and, and also the Planet of the Apes series as a whole? Um, well, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the original Planet of the Apes films, and I mean, I even watched the TV series as well, which was pretty bad overall. But <laughs> I mean, I think, like Brendan says, the the first film was good, but it did have flaws. And, I mean, certainly the sequels, again, had some really interesting concepts, but did have massive flaws. I always really enjoyed uh, Conquest of Planet of the Apes, which um, was kind of an origin story to the original film. And, I, you know, I really liked some of the ideas they did, but it, it was a bit flawed, and there were ways it went wrong. So, I mean, if if with a remake or, you know, a reboot or whatever this is exactly um if they can do something interesting with it then it's not a bad thing i mean if they they make a terrible film they make a terrible film but if they can make something good which i think is entirely possible with with an interesting premise then such as this then i think you know it could be really good we were pretty much guaranteed a good film um recently when scott frank was attached to the project when he was writing and directing I would have said to your hand on my heart, we can expect a little a little gem here. But now he's left the project, we don't know. It's up in the air. But it seems to be rooted in the same approach he was taking. Um, and Rupert Wyatt, you know, he's kind of untested, but The Escapist is a, is, a, is a promising film. I think it's good news as well that they picked James Franco, because I think of all the people you could pick for a, a film like this, especially if it's going to be... a you know, reasonably heavy on special effects, it's going to be a, a little bit tempoly. then, you know, James Franco's quite an interesting choice, and he seems to be quite a decent, interesting actor who who's not your kind of fluffy Hollywood blockbuster actor. I mean, if if the announcement had been Shia LaBeouf is going to be in it, I would be, maybe, my opinion would be a little bit different. I'd probably be groaning a little bit. But but I think, you know, it's they could do something good with it, and there's no reason why not. They, they flogged the dead horse with Planet of the Apes originally, and you know the TV series was pretty bad, but so it's there's no reason to say you can't do something interesting and revitalise it. But I, th- I, I, I agree with you with that assumption, and I also think that even though you have got the the Tim Burton, which uh, you know was a kind of a reimagining of of the first film, but it was so 
um, it was so well known and this goes back to is the ending of the original Planet of the Apes so well known that um, you can never do it again and of course the ending of the Tim Burton film kind of threw a lot of people no one really really knew exactly what, what they were seeing and I think it was a, you know, a nice twist and it was a nice way of you know, it took a bit more thought didn't it you had to actually work out what was going on exactly but I think a lot of people A and, and this is maybe what we were talking about a lot of people would have expected them to uh, to at least acknowledge the ending of Planet of the Apes but Tim Burton didn't do it he just took something completely different and um, and you know made uh, I think annoyed a lot of people I, I think that a lot of people weren't expecting it didn't know what to make of it and that kind of summed up you know the rest of the film for them but I think just you know, deciding to to reinvigorate the franchise by going back to the you know to the original or to going back further than the you know the, the original to, to present day to kind of makes make sense of it. It's one of those stories that, um, like with things like Star Wars prequels, there was just, there was no need to go back and, and explain it. Or in some ways, it or in many ways, it just it really was detrimental to the to the original films. But I think with Planet of the Apes, I think it's actually quite interesting to go back and see how it's done um, and see how we got to that stage. So. And, and, and this really won't be a prequel in any sense. It will be a reboot. Um, it's just interesting that they're approaching the franchise from a completely different point of view. <coughs> I mean, it used to be that um, it was a surprise revelation of what the H were in their relationship to people. This time, uh, it's building from that outwards. Mm. It's a completely different approach, but, it, but the, the same, a lot of the same issues apply. Yeah, and I think it'd be really interesting to see how how people accept it. I think um, uh, it will. It is one of those franchises that I think has got so much in it that I think it, it can certainly, you know, it can certainly stand many people taking it. It's, it's a bit like going back to the bad lieutenant thing. If you have a premise, if you have an idea, and you use that as kind of like a, a springboard for what's going to, you know, for for your film, then as long as it's an interesting uh, an interesting take on the on the material, then I don't think that they can they can go wrong really. So um, Indeed, that seems to be what we always say about remakes. But it is true, isn't it? It is true. They're not inherently bad at all. Exactly. No more. No more that a cover version of a song is inherently bad. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's that's wrapping up for the for the film news. We're going to move on to our rip from the crypt and unlike last week where we had our election uh, themed uh, rip from the crypt this is just back to to, to normal um if uh, if anyone listening has actually got any any sort of themes that, that, that they want to you know put to us um then do get in touch with us you can email us always at mouth off heyyouguys.co.uk um and also tell us what you what, what you think of the podcast um if you have any suggestions for us we'd, we'd love to hear your views so um we're going to get into it now let's start brendan how do you feel about going first for your rip script if i must shall i you go for it uh, it's a very nice day outside today and yes. it's kind of unexpected my wife and i actually took a little trip yesterday saying to ourselves this might be our summer this might be it this might be as good as it gets we've got to make use of it and we'd be at the beach now if I wasn't podcasting <laughs> your dedication to the causes and uh, I know thank you thank you um, so um, I thought I'd go for something suitable for the weather so I've chosen a film by Savage Steve Holland the director of Better Off Dead it's another one of his collaborations with John Cusack it's a film called One Crazy Summer okay. have you seen it? I've not seen it Craig have you seen it? No, I've not. Go on, no. Brendan. This is a this is a particular treat. You can tell us all about it and convert us. Um, I don't know if you've seen Better Off Dead or, or, or indeed any of the Han- um, not Lizzie McGuire, Lizzie McGuire, not Hannah Montana. I must get this right. Lizzie McGuire TV show that Steve Holland actually played a part in, sort of setting the paradigm for. But they blended animation and live action in a in a strange way. 
um, he always seemed to have a sort of a cartoonist as a main character. In a way, One Crazy Summer, it's the story of a guy called Hoops McCann, played by John Cusack, who wants to draw a romantic comic strip. Um, but he gets involved with a girl called Cassandra, whose dad is in danger of losing their property, and he's going to do some sort of fundraising type thing to try and help out. That's the idea at first. So the two things he wants to accomplish by the end is get with Cassandra, played by Demi Moore, and write his romantic comic strip. And of course you can see how the first story is going to inspire the second one. Um, but we've got a lot of great uh, 80s comedy turns showing up in this film. We've got Curtis Armstrong, who you probably know from Moonlighting. He turns up playing a character called uh, Akak. And we've got Bobcat Goldfight. Uh, who I who I love uh, playing a character called Stork Egg, um, which is particularly good. He's one of the um, no, sorry, Egg Stork. That's it. He's one of the Stork brothers. His brother Clay Stork, but he's Egg Stork, um, and and uh, you know they bring the lols, as the kids say. Um, and there's a lot of monkeying about with boats, there's boat racing, and a sort of a slightly cartoonish sort of style to it. If you imagine. There's a through line between like Frank Tashlin and Tim Burton. Imagine somebody trying to do that with absolutely no money for production value, and you've got somebody like Savage Steve Holland, and he's really working against the expectations of the genre that he's he's working in, um, and he's really not given anything like the resources that you would think somebody would normally need. But he's such a talented uh, animator in his own right, and he's got a lot of ideas for you know playing with live action animation. Uh, interplay in some sense in this film it's kind of episodic the tune bits of the live action are, are, are completely separate but it's of that very um, populist hey everyone let's 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 make a uh, let, let, let's make a sort of a teen movie for the kids it will go straight out on VHS and it's easy money sort of subgenre that that was around a lot in the in the eighties definitely one of the better ones so this is eighty what, what year was this out. Do you know what? I don't know. Let me just check it out. I think it's out. 86 was when it was right, out. Right, right. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? I'm just trying to think of when uh, Bear Off Dead was and um, in terms of in terms of John Cusack because he's, you know, as we were talking about earlier with the Hopped Up Time Machine, one of the, one of the sort of, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of self-parodic links is John Cusack's 80s persona and, of course, that was so, you know, that was yeah, so well defined. And, 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 and seeing this film and seeing Better Off Dead will help you understand certain things in, in Hot Tub just that little bit bit more but Hot Tub sort of I think the start of the Hot Tub line is Lloyd Dobler pretty much and then we go through Gross Point Blank and maybe War Incorporated and then we end up with, with Hot Tub in a sense um, but um, you know there is a, a sort of a pantheon of, of Cusack films from the 80s you'll notice that they've all got Jeremy Piven in as well this one does too um, and this is their you know it's not quite as good as The Sure Thing it's not quite as good as Better Off Dead but it's one that people don't know and people will enjoy I love it. That's absolutely perfect. That's exactly what Ripping Crips is about. Craig, have you seen this one at all or heard about it? No, no. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, John Cusack sells me on it, I think, and uh, Jeremy Piven as well. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll have to look up. Piven's got a small role, I have to be honest. Have you seen Better Off Dead over of you? Yeah. A long I time haven't. Ago, though. Yeah. Did you like it, John? Yeah, yeah, but it's, it, it kind of got lost. I, I was doing. Um, again, this is you know the whole nostalgia thing, but I was I was recommended a load of old you know, 80s films to, to see, to kind of check out, and I think that that was one of them. I, I enjoyed it, and I always enjoyed, you know, John Cusack, and I remember it being around in the 80s when I was a kid and not seeing it, so it always kind of held this uh, allure to me. Um, and then when I did see it, I wasn't disappointed in it at all, and 
I'd, I'd be, and it kind of got me hooked on on the notion of um, you know John Cusack in in the eighties because there are certain actors who really do define a time, and I wasn't you know John Cusack wasn't one of the John Hughes, you know, stable. So it was quite nice to see somebody else who established himself, who I only got to know later on in the kind of the nineties. And um, it was good to kind of see the, uh, you know, the lines that can be drawn from something like that to better off dead. And then, you know, being John Malkovich, I think it's just, it's, it's a really good, you know, testament to a interesting career where he's picked really, really good roles in the last couple of decades. So, okay. That sounds not really good. Exclusively, John. Sorry. He's not, not, He's not picked purely good roles. Are you talking I about twenty twelve here by any chance? 20, yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was. Come horrible. on, what's wrong with you guys? That's the funniest film I've seen all it, sort of like last. Year. <laughs> Is it out last year? It was out last year. Yeah, it it's was hilarious, it and it's deliberately funny. I swear to you, it's yeah, deliberately funny. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we talked about this before, and and in and in no way can you take it seriously and it gets more and more ridiculous one of my favorites of 2012 is the is when they're escaping in in the car john cusick and amanda peter in the limousine and you have um they're following this very slow moving car and it's driven by two women who are kind of a bit comedy a bit silly and you know and then all of a sudden john cusick's car takes a detour and then you see the you know the car driven by the old lady smashing into this enormous um into this enormous bit of road that just ramps up in front of them and they die so i thought that was quite fun that kind of set the tone for bit me a little bit bit of road rage justice going exactly. on there. <laughs> yeah. the best bit the bit with the ch- chicken i mean that's by far and away the best bit in the film where the conversation goes like mother I'm going to go and join them you remember the, the scene in, in the, it's like in the Chinese steps or wherever and, and she's going to chop the head off the chicken you remember that scene No, why do I and she sort of thing? stood there holding a cleaver over it and her son's talking to her and um, uh, he says something like preposterous and it cuts to the chicken for a reaction shot and it looks at him and it goes huh? <laughs> huh? you see the thing is chicken and, and dogs that's two things that you can brilliant you know. foggy fantastic yeah, exactly <laughs> 2012 is it's genuinely funny on purpose and deliberately. You see, it's, it's interesting because I saw um, for the site I was sent. Um, the, it's a DVD box called you know the B Movie DVD collection, something unambiguous and uninspired like that. But actually, some of the some of the films there were films I had seen, uh, like Revenge, uh, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, and Hell Comes to Frogtown. Those sort of films that that I had seen in you know populating the shelves of the local video store you know in the 80s and you a friend and I used to get out one you know every every other month and just sit and, and just really really enjoy it and in some ways it was nice to go back and see um, a proper B movie in the sense that they there's no pretensions to it it's just completely hilarious it's completely silly and over the top and um, there's nothing you know there's no sort of nods to the to the audience, there's no sort of you know postmodern nonsense self parody. No, I, I think it's it, I think it's easily the best film uh, Emmerich ever made. 2012. I think all of his other films are B movies, kind of of the ilk that you've just described, but they hmm. they 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 don't work. Um, he's not very good, is he? I mean, he's just not a very good filmmaker. But I think um, um, you know uh, I can't remember who directed Hell Comes to Frogtown now, but you know we're not dealing with a. Not dealing with a master there now either, are we? No, we're really, really not. But it's 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 nice. It's, it's good to kind of you know revisit these things occasionally, and um, uh, you know you can see John Cusack's latest in 2012, and you can see his you know one of his earliest ones with One Crazy Summer. So that's a good recommendation. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, I'm going to take the next one because um, the reason that I chose this is actually there, there's a film which many people are looking forward to this summer, Inception by Christopher Nolan, and we've been seeing more and more of that. 
being revealed and there's trailers tv spots that are, that are kind of coming out and there are a few shots that really you know capture people's imagination even though we don't necessarily know an awful lot about um you know what the actual plot is and in some way that's um that's been well kept under wraps but there are a few leaks and we've kind of got an idea about what it's all about um and the film that i'm going to recommend is um a japanese film animation film um called paprika by shatoshi Kon who has also done Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and he did a TV series called Paranoia Agent. Now, um, guys, have any of you seen Paprika? Yeah, definitely. I, I, the second oh, you said Inception, the second you said Inception, I knew you were going to say Paprika. <laughs> I'm very yeah. pleased because it was... Um, the, the very first concert I ever had with Paprika was when um, I read a lot of uh, illustration um, websites. There's one called Drawn, who um, and they 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 just, they just put up the trailer saying this is a really really beautifully done trailer. It's you know the animation, the ideas are in it are fantastic. And I'd never heard of 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 the, of the director. I'd never heard of the project before. And um, I took one look at the trailer and uh, I was completely captivated. It was some of the images in there were so perfect, so intriguing um, that I just had to check it out. And I've, I got it on Blu-ray as soon as it came out, and it looks just just wonderful the, the basic premise is um this this company has um, invented a machine called the dc mini and it allows dreams to be recorded and observed and what happens is um someone unknown uh, steals one of these devices and it's still in development and they actually enter people's dreams and they muck about with them and they can induce you know comatose states and things like that so there's a um, there's a detective who's uh, investigating a murder who gets drawn into it all, and there's a, a, a female um, therapist who's involved with this, uh, you know, with this sort of um, uh, dream uh, psychosis um, uh, therapy that, that that the DC Mini is going to be part of, and she um, and her sort of dream state, which is the the, the the main character, Paprika, they can actually enter the dreams and escape through the dreams. And there are, there are just some amazing, amazing sequences in this life, for example, where they're being chased and they're being chased through people's dreams. So you can literally, so you see, you, you see Paprika jumping into, um, you know, paintings on the wall and then becoming part of that world in the painting. And um, I have to say, I'm, I'm not going to do it any, any justice by describing it because the, the visuals in it are so, so good and so imaginative that if you go and see um, the trailer on the site when I actually put this, this, this post up, uh, I think you'll be totally captivated. There are some... Um, just beautiful, beautiful images, that, the, the kind of which you don't see unless you're looking at something like Inception because, of course, if you haven't seen the trailer for Inception you don't want to be spoiled, don't listen, but the main shot that everyone's talking about is the is the, is the, is the shot of Paris where it seems to be folding in on itself. Dark City. Um, say it again? Dark City. We've seen it before. It looks like Dark City, just not as good. Okay, fair enough. But um, and, and in some ways, Dark City. Yeah, I, I, I can see how that you know works works with Paprika. But I'd not seen anything so so vibrant and so uh, you know slightly sinister. There is just some moments in it which are, are just so perfect. And the actual story, the uncovering of who it is, and you know the whole the whole notion of um, of, of why they're doing it is intriguing enough to kind of to kind of you know pull all these visual elements together. Um, I have to say the one one another thing that really drew me to it was um, was the soundtrack, and you'll hear this when you see the trailer. There's a, there's a few snippets there. Um, the soundtrack is by Susumu uh, Hirasawa, who's done a lot of um, a lot of sort of electronic um, 
soundtracks, I think for some for video games and and, uh, and now for this film. It's just such a wonderful soundtrack. I, I bought it as soon as I can and there is just some really amazing melodies and really well used in terms of what you're seeing on screen in terms of you know the uh, the emotions and uh, and um, narratives that the that the soundtrack plays on so uh, I'm a huge huge fan of it not so huge fan of the news or the rumors that it's going to be um remade into like a live action um film Wolfgang Peterson was kind of attached to it there's news going about about this but um doesn't add up does it, it just no. doesn't add up you want somebody like michelle gondry making that well that's the thing because i mean I'm, I'm a big fan of things like science of sleep and in turn sunshine and, and th- those kind of films where you would have um you know worlds being created worlds falling apart and the the line between dreams you know fantasy and reality kind of blurring and it's interesting when i was watching paprika i saw um a scene where she's she's in a street and she notices that some of the street is looking a bit odd and she goes over and it's actually um a break in the in the in the world so it's like a like a bit of broken glass exactly like a bit in in time bandits um where you where you have you know the uh the gang on the on, on the beach and they and they break through the invisible barrier to go into mm. another world behind the the world that you see there are just some really really fine moments like that so well it, i mean it goes without saying that, that, that the master of all of this stuff is, is mr gilliam mm. I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, he's he's just the master of it all. There's a lot of other interesting little films of in this in this genre. I imagine Craig's probably seen Nightmare Detective. It seems to be up his street. Yeah, the um, oh, I'm, Shinya Sukumoto. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's some really interesting stuff in uh, Japanese cinema to do with uh, these sort of themes. I mean, Satoshi Kon's done some incredible work as well. I mean, I really love Tokyo Godfathers, which um, yeah, he made, which is, is almost like a little Christmas film. Um, that's, exactly and, what, that's exactly what it is. It's one of my favourite Christmas films, in fact. And, and I like to watch it at Christmas and feel all glowy. See, this is it. We're getting like tons and tons of recommendations today, aren't we? I love it. Well, can, can I just add another one? Because sure because can. we've just pointed out that that uh, you know the, the Far East has done a lot of good stuff in this in this subgenre. Of course, Joseph Rubin back in 1984 made Dreamscape, which is about people entering dreams using a little bit of um, technology. Mm. Um, that's a corker. I love Joe Rubin. I think he's really really good. Um, um, sleeping with the enemy, the stepfather, um, uh, the forgotten. I think he's tr- tremendous. And Dreamscape's a, a good, good film. And it, it's probably the first film of the special effects era, as it were, mm. to play with these ideas. So and, maybe um, that I think we, we could have happily have done a, um, a sort of a Dreamscape rip from the crypt. We've seen about six <laughs> recommendations: <laughs> Nightmare Detective, Nightmare Det- Detective Two, anything by Gondry. Um, time bandits realm of fantasy mm. um, let's sum them up we've got uh, um, paprika um, and what were the other ones there were more. There were more. There were more but, t- Tokyo yeah. Godfathers as well and I mean actually I think anything by Khan I mean the um, perfect blue is really good as well oh, that's that was really interesting yeah, things yeah. to say and I mean paranoia detective is uh, Sorry, paranoia agent is a great series as well really really has some and it, it, has some really it's interesting thing. because that we're talking about him and talking about the notion of dreams because there's um I think that his next film is actually going to be called The Dreaming Machine. Yeah, uh, the the dream machine, but it's have you heard as well it's supposedly 
it's only got robots in it. There's yeah. no humans. And if if you see <laughs> on, um, I'll, I'll try and put some some on the post. There have been a few images that have actually come out about it, and it looks, um, it is all robots, and it's very. Um, in, in, in terms of, of, of the look of it, it's not like Pepper. It's not sort of set in the real world in the sense that it's for kids, I think. I think and there's a, a there's a different kind of style that he's working with. But, it, I mean, these things obviously are, are very crucial to how he understands the world and, and the kind of ideas that he is interested in. So um, do go and see Paprika and all the other ones that we've recommended, especially before any of them get made in sort of, you know, English language live action. That will be, that'll be great. Um, let's move on. Craig, what's your rip from the crypt this week? Um, my one is a film called, uh, I'm not going to tell the Italian title because my pronunciation is going to be too bad, but it's a film called Machine Gun McCain, which, to be honest, has got such a great American title. Um, it's a film that I I was trying to decide whether or not to recommend it on Rip for the Crypt, and it was kind of not getting near the top of my list, but I found out this week that it's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray in August. And um, so I thought it was a good uh, good opportunity to recommend a, a film that a lot of people might not have seen. Um, and I certainly hadn't heard of it for quite some time. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really, I don't know, it's not a brilliant film. It's not an amazing film, but it's a really, really enjoyable film that rests quite largely on its cast. Um, the lead in it, uh, the Machine Gun McCain, is John Cassavetes. And uh, he goes up against uh, the kind of the villain of the piece, which is played by Peter Falk. And later on in the film, you see Gina Rowlands pops up as well. So if you're a fan of kind of that kind of John Cassavetes pool of actors, then it's it's got a lot to offer there. And I think um, that's one of the things that I found most enjoyable. I think I think seeing Peter Falk play a villain is just fantastic as well. And um, it's also got a really great soundtrack by Ennio Morricone, which um, I think I'd heard quite a lot before I saw the film. Um, yeah. It's one of, one of Morricone's really good scores. Um, it gets around, doesn't it? Yeah. You hear it on things. It's like uh, the director made another film of the Sanka... Oh. Uh, <laughs> Is your pronunciation coming into play there? <laughs> yeah. He, he made another film. I'm not even going to say it, where uh, Morricone did the score as well, which I'd heard as well before I saw the film. Um, is that um, is it Sacco e Vanzetti? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. That's my pronunciation. I'm happy to, to be mugged. <laughs> I started to say it, say it, and then I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't attempt it. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's got a fantastic score as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great crime film. It's uh, I, I mean, I... I don't really want to say too much about the plot because it's there's not too much to the plot, so I don't want to give it away too much. But um, it's about a guy who's pretty hard, and he gets out of jail. <laughs> and, uh, he he has to kill a lot of people. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's not actually that much more complex than that. It goes, it has a few little twists and turns, but essentially, it's if you like your kind of late sixties, early seventies crime films, and kind of. I don't know in the in the Peckinpah vein, maybe the Sam Fuller kind of vein. Then it, it's it's probably up your street, and especially I mean the cast. I just I could watch Gina Rowlands on screen anytime. So no, I, I know. Brenda. But my, I actually said she was my favourite actress once, and my wife actually questioned that. Woman on a verge of a nerve. I'm just saying that because yeah, well, I think Rachel said that, that she was doubtful. She's like, ah, you just like because she's in those Casavetti's films, and it's like, well. No, I think she actually is my favourite actress. I think I've enjoyed watching her, Jenna, act more than anyone else. 
Ever. Yeah. And my wife's I'm actually raising one eyebrow at me now. Like, <laughs> How are you going to say Ruth Gordon? Ruth Gordon? No, but I do like Ruth Gordon too. But, um, uh, but you know, I mean, I, if Jenna Rowlands was going to, you know, read the newspaper to me, I'd be there, you know? Okay, well, it sounds good. I mean, I've not seen the film, uh, so I'd be really interested to check it out, not least for the cast, but also because um, uh, the tagline is great. Even the mafia calls him Mr. It's just brilliant. You have to even put on a silly voice when you say it. So, <laughs> yeah, it it comes out on uh, it's Blue Underground are putting it out in August. So um, the oh, Blu-ray, surprise. yeah, the Blu-ray looks like it's not got a hell of a lot, but um, yeah, definitely. But they're definitely good. William look. William Lustig always makes sure that the transfers for the for the stuff on Blue Underground is just as good as you can ever get. I mean, all of that stuff just looks perfect. Yeah, I mean, even the trailer, the the transfer on the trailer looks fantastic that they've put up on their site. So, um, yeah, definitely head over to Blue Underground. You can order it from them direct as well. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go over there myself and I'll put that in the post for this uh, for this podcast when it goes up on the site so that people can check we it out. We need a little note on this film. Say again? We need a little footnote. Oh, go on then. There's another film from, from around about then that teams Cassavetes and Volk with an uh, uh, alien director. Uh, in this case, uh, Elaine May, um, Mikey and me. Okay, and when's that from? Is that from around the same era? Ish, you know, give or take. Mikey and Nicky. They're talking about the same age. Okay, and is that one that you would that you would recommend? Ho- wholeheartedly, yeah, wholeheartedly. I think um, I think McCain is is what it is, and I think Craig sums it up pretty well. And it's a film that. Uh, it will be seen and enjoyed, but I think Mikey and Nicky is tremendous. Okay, well there you go. Seriously, you've had so many recommendations this week that I don't know. We should team ourselves with Amazon or someone and um, start making a lot of money. But um... <laughs> well, you should do that. You should do that. The the, um, the director of uh, of Mikey and Nicky, by the way, Elaine May. She's of course the director of Ishtar, and that stopped her directing career. Stone Stone Dead, and it's a shame because. She was very, very good. She directed the original Heartbreak Kid as well. So um, anything directed by Elaine May, there you go. There's not that many films there, but it's uh, worth checking out. Okay. All right, guys. There's another thing that uh, is worth mentioning with uh, Cassavetes. We're talking about him as an actor as well. That um, I've always wanted to see, and I was wondering, maybe I'm wondering, Brendan, you might have seen it, uh, Johnny Staccato. It was a TV series that he was in. Yeah. um, Oh, how? Have I actually got a copy of that or not? If I haven't, oh, I'm going to because we sat and watched it together. If you've got it, Brendan, you can um, lend it to me. You'd be very happy. I want to see course it. I, of course I will. Of course I will. It's, um, you know, again, you know, uh, I like watching him. Not as much as the missus, but um, I think he was I think he was tremendous. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Again, it's, it is what it is in the style of McCain. You take the rough with the smooth with, uh, with Johnny Staccato. But, um, yeah, oh man, maybe we should have a little session and watch them together. Well, there you go. So while you two sort out your social lives, that'd be great. I'm going to wrap up here, I think. Um, thank <laughs> you so much, guys, for your recommendations and for your chatter this week. Um, uh, if you do have any comments, any suggestions, anything else you want to say to us, um, you can uh, email us at mouthoffatheyyouguys.co.uk. Check out everything we do on the site. And also, we're on Twitter. We're at Hey You Guys blog, and we're on Facebook and everywhere else. Uh, if you do go on the site, you can check out our can coverage. We've got pretty much um, most of the biggest films being reviewed by our man out there, and he's doing a really good job, and I think he must be knackered now. But um, there'll be plenty. Maybe we can talk about can next week once it's all wrapped up. So 
So um, thank you very much for your time, guys, and we will see you all next week. Bye.